right, good morning again, everyone. It's so good to be able to see your faces as we worship, even if, if it's over Zoom. Again, if you're uh, streaming in, I uh, encourage you to either hop onto the YouTube page or if you are part of a small group, to actually log into the Zoom and join what's going to be happening uh, as we uh, listen to the message together. Uh, so uh, this week, our passage is in Mark 11, chapters 15 to 19. So please turn your Bibles or just have a reference to Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. And this is the, the, the last week in our core series before we take a break for Christmas. And we're continuing to look at our church value of dependent, faithful, and faith-filled prayer. So we're looking at this value of dependent, faithful, and faith-filled prayer. You know, last week, we looked at the heart of true prayer. You know, we examined the wrong approach to prayer and the right approach to prayer. A false prayer is done from self-seeking motives. It doesn't approach God as Father. God and trusts God as Father. So in other words, true prayer comes from this, this attitude of trusting and receiving what God has already done for us in Jesus. You approach God believing you're accepted, that God is a good father who loves you and is ready and he's willing to answer your prayers and to give what's best for you. So that's true prayer. Uh, on the other hand, false prayer approaches God trying to earn his acceptance. Now, either through how the prayer is said or how we, what, what we do in our actions and our lifestyle. So the encouragement and challenge for every one of us here is to go to God and truly pray on your own. You know, seek to be alone with God. You know, Jesus calls and invites his disciples to receive the reward that God only gives from meeting with him in secret. And part of this reward is that in prayer, you meet with God in such a way that you leave realizing more deeply how much God loves you as Father. You know, prayer doesn't make you any more good or righteous in God's eyes, but it allows you to live out the righteous life that God has given you in Jesus that comes from knowing you're his child. Another thing that God does through prayer is provide us with exactly what we need. Now, God is all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's our Father. He knows exactly what we need. Let me elaborate on this a bit, because our perception of need and God's perception are very different. Now, many times we approach God like how a kid might approach their parent to help them with their homework. So some of you who are part of the homework club knows usually helping them with their homework means just giving them the answer. <laughs> and of course, we know what they truly need isn't the answer. What they truly need is the guidance to know how to find the answer for themselves. See, our, our human perception of needs is limited to our life here and now. 
but we're constantly focused on what we need to keep our brief life on earth functioning. But God's perception of our needs stretches beyond our short life. Now, God is thinking about what his children need for the eternal life he's given to us after our finite life ends. And what we need for this eternal life is to trust God, to grow in our knowledge and love of him, because eternal life is to know God, says Jesus in John 17, 1. Our true needs includes things that we need for life here on earth, but is much more than that. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't work in supernatural and miraculous ways to provide for us, because he does. In fact, everything that God provides through prayer is supernatural, just not the way that we tend to think about supernatural. You know, the grace to persevere and trust him through hard times, the comfort we need through seasons of suffering, the strength to love those who are difficult to love, these are all supernatural things that cannot come from ourselves. God's invitation for his people in prayer is to go to him asking for what we think we need, but to trust him with what we truly need and then experience his perfect provision for us as our good father. So we're to go with God, asking him with what we think we need, trust him with what we truly need. And as we do that, in this place of relationship with God in prayer, we experience his provision for us. Now, sometimes what we truly need is what we think we need. Sometimes it is an immediate solution to our difficult circumstances, you know, whether it's sickness or financial issues or relational conflict. But other times, what we truly need isn't immediate, the immediate solution, isn't just the answer to the test or the homework question. But whatever our need is, it starts with truly seeking God alone in prayer. And this, this invitation is, is still open to you this morning. You know, whether you decided to accept that invitation this week to seek God or whether you didn't, Jesus calls all of his disciples, God the Father calls all of his children to seek him in prayer. So that's what we talked about last week, going to God individually in prayer. And this week, we're going to focus on praying with other believers or corporate prayer. But before we do that, we're going to actually pause to get some discussion going. So I want everybody to think of two questions, which should be on uh, the, the screen. Uh, the first question is this, what makes praying alone difficult for you? Okay, think about it. What makes praying alone difficult for you? Okay. The second question I want you to think about and to discuss is, what do you think the purpose of praying together is? Okay. So what makes praying alone difficult for you? What do you think the purpose of praying together is? For those of you who maybe uh, weren't able to catch what we were doing, we were discussing a couple questions about prayer. So the first question was, you know, why do you think or what makes difficult? What, what makes praying alone difficult for you? Uh, so some answers that we got uh, in our discussion group uh, here uh, in the sanctuary was uh, it's hard to be disciplined to, to, to schedule it in. 
um, to be consistent in it. Uh, another answer we got was it's easy to get distracted when, when you're praying alone because you're just alone with your thoughts with God. Um, the second question uh, that was asked was, why do you think praying together is so important or what's the purpose of corporate prayer? Uh, and the discussion that we had here was, um, you know, the Bible talks about both. Uh, it's a way for us to actually learn how to pray. You know, we teach each other how to pray uh, in the right way. Um, we encourage each other in our prayer when, when we see each other's faith. Um, we build each other up. Uh, it's also for our, our, our sanctification, right? Sometimes praying with people is, isn't easy. It's actually difficult uh, because you have to engage with somebody, understand them as well. So it actually helps us to uh, grow in our love. And another aspect of that is it helps us uh, to display unity, the unity that God, that pleases God and that God desires. Uh, so thanks for sharing, everyone. Hopefully we're able to get some thoughts going uh, and we'll continue to work on better ways to do these discussion times during our service. Um, but overall, you know, the hope was that you can hear other people's challenges with prayer and to see that you're not alone. You know, it's something that all believers struggle with and that they can relate to. It's something that we can all encourage each other to, to grow in. Um, so there are some great answers for what the purpose of praying together is. You know, it, it is a way to encourage one another to seek God. But, but this morning, we're going to focus on the most foundational reason for why corporate prayer is important. And it's found in the main point, which is this. Our main point for this morning is to seek to gather as a house of prayer. It's what God has called his family to be. Seek to gather as a house of prayer. It's what God has called his family to be. The reason we are to pray together is because that's, that's who we are. You know, asking why we should pray is a little bit like asking, you know, wh why do firefighters put out fires? Why do cars drive on the road? It's because it's what they are. It's, it's what they do. Why, why do Christians gather to pray? Because God has called them to be a house of prayer. It's, it's what they do. You know, God's people pray to God. And it seems sort of redundant to have to say this, but our lack of prayer maybe shows that we don't actually know who we are. It's important for us to be what God has called us to be, and our passage this morning teaches us why this is so important. So I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. I'll follow along as I read our passage for this morning. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. And they came to Jerusalem, and he, speaking of Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So in this passage, we see a side of Jesus that's unlike any other in the Bible. Now, Jesus is in the temple. Now, he isn't actually in the temple building itself. 
he's in this big enclosed space right outside the temple that was called the court of the Gentiles. And the space is big enough to fill a full-sized market, and that's what it was actually being used for. So imagine a busy market in front of the temple, an atmosphere like one you might actually feel when you walk into a wet market in Hong Kong. But this isn't just any temple. No, it's the only temple that someone can come and pray to God in. It is the place that was believed where God was most present. It's a very public, but a very important and sacred space. And Jesus is in this place deliberately destroying things. He is very aggressive and physical. He's purposely acting in a threatening manner to drive people doing business in the area out. He's intrusive to the point that people stop passing through this court area. Now, Jesus is mounting an intense one-person protest against what's being done in the temple. And for most people watching, Jesus would have come off as very irreverent, somebody who is disrupting worship to God. Everything was peaceful, going as it should be. People are worshiping God. Jesus comes in and suddenly destroys everything. It looks like Jesus is rebelling against God. He wants to stop worship to God in the temple. But Jesus' perspective on the situation was the exact, the exact opposite. You know, Jesus did not see a place where all was going well. He did not see a place where, worship, where people were worshiping God as they should. What Jesus saw was a situation that was very, very wrong. And so he takes action to correct these wrongs. So first, he, he physically stops what shouldn't be happening. He drives out those that are buying and selling. He stops people from casually walking through the court. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also teaches people where things have gone wrong and what needs to be done to correct it. And so it says in verse 17, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. See, the temple was to be a place of prayer for everyone from around the world to come to. The court area outside the temple was meant for all people to come from wherever they are to seek God. That's what Jesus wanted to see. A court full of people from all around the world praying and seeking him. But that's not what was happening. God's people, the Jewish people, had distorted the intended purpose of the temple and made it into something else. Instead of a house of prayer, they had made it into a den of robbers. What that means is a place where outlaws and rebels hide. You don't steal in your own lair. You don't steal in your own den. You go to it to hide from all the wrong things you've been doing. So on the outside, it looked like Jesus was the one who was rebelling against God, but the spiritual reality was that everyone else at the temple were the true rebels, were the true criminals. They were using the temple as a way to mask their true intentions. And this expressed itself in their actions, in the things they did at the temple and the things that they did not do at the temple. 
The problem wasn't what they were doing so much as where they were doing it. In in a space meant for people to wholeheartedly seek God, they were doing everything but praying. And this revealed their true motivations for gathering at the temple. It, it, It wasn't to seek God. It was for other purposes. See, on the surface, those who gathered in the temple were doing good things for God. You know, the merchants were selling what people needed to sacrifice to God. That's good. That's needed. No way people could bring animals from, you know, halfway uh, down the province to to sacrifice. Worshippers were there to buy animals to sacrifice to God. That's also good. But all of this was part of a system to hide people's sin and disobedience towards God's law. Because people could come sacrifice and leave feeling like they've paid their dues to God. And then they can get on with their lives without having another thought for him for the rest of the year. You know, they've sacrificed at the temple. I'm good with God. I can live my own life now. So the place where God desired people to seek him had been turned into a place for people to do a lot of religious activity for God, appear to be right with him, but withhold the devotion and obedience God really wanted and deserved. Instead of worshiping God in repentance, the temple became a place to hide people's idols. A den of robbers full of people withholding proper worship to God. A refuge for criminals and rebels, not a house of prayer. When I was in university, there was this charity organization that would talk to students. They were very nice, very kind. They wanted to support uh, orphans in the Philippines. and, you know, me being, you know, a, a Christian uh, who wants to love people, like, would give money. A couple months later, I found out that they were actually not a charity organization. <laughs> they were a money-making organization, and I got cheated. But on the outside, they were doing good things for God. They had this whole system that looked so good. But in reality, they were a bunch of robbers. Seek to gather as a house of prayer. It's what God has called his family to be. What does this mean for Christians today? You know, the temple building that existed in Jesus' time, it's no longer here. So where is this house of prayer supposed to be? And the answer is found in our first point this morning, which is this. Jesus died to create a new house of prayer made of people. Jesus died to create a new house of prayer made of people. Take a look at the next couple of verses in our passage. All right, so continuing on, Mark chapter 11, starting from verse 19. After Jesus protested the temple, when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So before going into the temple in verse 15, Jesus had cursed a fig tree he had passed by in verses 12 to 14. Now, this this fig tree looked healthy and ready to produce a fruit for Jesus to eat. 
But in reality, it was all just a deceitful appearance. There was actually nothing for Jesus to enjoy. So passing by the same fig tree the next day, Peter realizes that Jesus' curse had been effective. The tree hadn't just died. It was completely withered. And the reason why Jesus had cursed the fig tree and it didn't wither until after visiting the temple was for Jesus to use it as a symbolic teaching tool for his disciples. Now, just like the fig tree, everything at the temple looked good on the outside. But upon closer inspection, it wasn't producing anything that God wanted. And like the fig tree, this rotten temple that Jesus, that Jesus visited would die and be replaced. And so that's why he says to Peter, have faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and believes it, it will be done. You know, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's looking at the hill where the temple is built and saying, you know, though my personal protest didn't do much to stop the temple from being a den of robbers right now, things are going to change. The temple will be removed and replaced with a new and true one. See, part of Jesus' teaching to his disciples was that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days without human hands. And as Jesus, Jesus is on his way to be crucified throughout the Gospels, and especially in Mark, this teaching is repeated again and again. People accuse him. You said you're going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. And that's because Jesus' death for sin and resurrection three days later was the way that God was going to build a new temple, a new house of prayer. And as people from all over the world come to faith in Jesus, they recognize their sin and repent, they would become people who truly want to obey and seek God. 1 Peter 2, 4-6 summarizes it this way. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. At the temple that day, Jesus was the only one who had the right approach to seeking God. He wanted people to seek God in his house of prayer, but no one else really wanted to. They were too caught up in their sin and selfish motives. But now through faith in Jesus, people can become a part of God's spiritual house, his spiritual temple. Like Jesus, people can approach God in prayer with the right heart. You know, God's people don't gather at a at a physical temple building anymore. That didn't work out. Instead, God's people gather as the temple. They gather to be God's house of prayer. But like the physical temple, what God is looking for hasn't changed. He's looking for people to gather to seek God and God alone, not for anything else. Now, being a house of prayer starts with gathering with the right motives. And it seems pretty straightforward, you know, we go to worship God. But when we really take time to reflect on it, other things come up. So as Jesus looks at our gathering this morning, you know, whether it's over Zoom or in other ways, 
would he see a house of prayer or a den of robbers? What are our reasons for coming together this morning? You know, is it to hide and justify our sin? You know, do you use going to church or watching a church service as a way to relieve guilt for the wrong in your life? Do you see attending church service as a way to do your duty to God and then move on to other things in life? Do you gather with other believers as a way to seek after other things? You know, in a city like Hong Kong, going to church can mean everything else but actually seeking God. You know, people go to church to make good connections, meet friends, learn English, learn good morals, help their child's development. Are the reasons why we would go to worship based on who we know is also attending that week? If our reason for gathering with a church is anything else but to seek the Lord, we're making it a den of robbers. We steal from God the worship and honor that we're supposed to be giving to him when we gather. And when our motives for gathering, how do you know if your motives are right? A good indicator is prayer is the last thing on your mind. You know, we want the service to be shorter so we can pay our dues and get on with the real reason with why we showed up to worship. You know, I had a, I knew a really friendly guy in my small group in Hong Kong for two years uh, previously, a couple years back. Super open, very talkative. Um, but it seems something was a little off because he would tell us the right things to say about God, but he would rarely show up to worship. But he would always be there for the social aspects. And it all made sense a little while later when I actually found out that he was going to church to make connections to sell insurance. Um, and he eventually stopped going to church altogether. I guess he ran out of connections. So when our motives for gathering are wrong, prayer and seeking God is the last thing on our minds. We don't actually want to do it. We want to do every other activity but pray, like everyone at a temple that day. On the other hand, when our reasons for gathering is right, prayer together is the natural outcome. No, we're there because we want to seek God. Um, my church back in Toronto was a, a bigger church, big building, so it actually had a prayer room. So before service, um, there was a prayer meeting. People would gather together there to pray. Sometimes people would go there earlier. But it was a very you know, special environment because no matter who was there, you knew the other person was coming to pray, and you would talk for a bit, but eventually it was very natural just to, just to pray, just to pray about the things you talked about or, or just, to, just, just, just to be there together in prayer. It didn't feel awkward. It didn't feel like, what are you doing? We're, we're there to pray. Any place where we're gathered together should feel like a prayer room because that's what it is. It's more than that. It's a whole house of prayer. Now, this isn't to say that we have to feel really excited to gather at every worship service, but it does mean there should be a desire for God, a sense that we need Him, and that's why we came that morning. And it's those times that we don't where we have to examine ourselves. You know, perhaps somewhere along the way, somewhere in our life, you know, what we're seeking has changed, and we need to go back to God in repentance and faith. So through faith in Jesus, God makes his people to be a new house of prayer. Being a house of prayer means coming to him with the right motives. Our next two points tells us why this is, this is important. We are a house of prayer 
This is how we become a house of prayer, getting our motives right. Why is this important? One reason is that true prayer together marks God's family. True prayer together marks God's family. See, we're a house of prayer. Two aspects to this. First, no, we're a house, meaning we're a part of God's family. Each person in God's family can go to him as father. The reason we're a family in the first place is because God is our father. He's adopted us. This means, secondly, that those who are part of God's family will meet together with him as a family. How do you meet with a God who is invisible, who's all-present? Well, you pray. So those who know God as their father, who are part of his family, will come together to seek him. You'll think of it this way. Imagine you're going to a family dinner or family gathering or whatever, and everyone talks to everyone else but ignores the dad. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be really strange? And the only reason why this would happen is because um, they don't care about their father, they have a bad relationship with their father, or he really isn't their father. And this brings us to the second aspect. Prayer distinguishes God's family. You know, there were many religious activities going on in the ancient temple. You know, priests constantly sacrificing animals. Teachers would preach in the temple courts like what Jesus was doing. Temple singers would sing praises to God. But Jesus doesn't say, my house should be a house of sacrifice. My house should be a house of service. He doesn't even say my house should be a house of preaching and teaching or my house should be a house of singing. You know, all of these things are commanded by God as a part of our worship to him. But the activity that Jesus uses to mark God's family isn't any of those. It's prayer. Why is that? Because anybody can attend a gathering of faith, listen to a sermon, give some money, sing along, and even help out with some sort of activity and not be right with God. But no one can truly pray without being right with God. No one can truly pray without being right with God. The self-sufficient does not pray. The self-satisfied will not pray. The self-righteous cannot pray. Only those who humbly trust and depend on God as their father can pray. Only those who are part of God's family can pray. God's house is a house of prayer. Those who pray are a part of his family. The last reason why we should seek to be a house of prayer is because God desires his people to seek him together. God desires his people to seek him together. When we look at this passage, Jesus in the temple, he's so full of intensity, so full of zeal and passion. There's nothing more that he wants done in that moment than for God's house to be a house of prayer. And that's because Jesus, as God's son, desires exactly what his father wants. And what God's desire has been has never changed. It's always been for a people to gather and to seek him and to love him as God. In fact, this plan for a house of prayer isn't something that Jesus came up with here in Mark 11. It's something that God had written about centuries before in Isaiah 56. Jesus was simply at work doing what his father was planning to do and what his father wanted. 
Now, Jesus sets the example for us in terms of the passion and zeal we should have for God's house to be a house of prayer. Now, as God's children, as we grow in our love for him, we want to pursue what our Father wants. We want to do what pleases him. We want to build his house of prayer and be his house of prayer. So, so what's the purpose of gathering together to pray? Why, why go to something like Powerhouse? The foundational answer is because we love our Father and we want to spend time together with Him as a family because it pleases Him. There's so many more reasons the Bible gives, but it really starts here. We go because it pleases God and we want to please Him together as His children. So in a couple of minutes, we're going to respond by spending some time praying together. But before that, I thought I would share some ways to help us pray together. So the first thing is this. Be in God's presence together. Be in God's presence together. See, what's important is not so much what you say, but the posture of focusing your heart on God's invisible presence. Now, God's here He's with us where we're gathered in our rooms over Zoom. You don't have to say anything. You may not have anything to say. Just actively remind yourself of God's power and presence. Think of who he is and then embrace the truth in your heart that he's here. And then as you do that, start to speak to him what's on your mind, what's on your heart. And as you speak to God, you know, be mindful that you're not the only one in the conversation. There are other people who are praying with you. You know, the one you're talking to is God. You're praying to him, but you're talking to him in a way where others can understand the conversation. Now, if you're the one joining in on someone's prayer in a group, Keep in mind that God is just as present and aware of you and what's going on in your heart and mind as a person who's actually praying aloud. And what you want to do is to join your heart and mind with the person who is praying out loud. So this means listening and understanding what they're saying so that you can pray to God in your heart, yes, this is what I also want. This is what I'm also asking. This is what I also affirm is true. The last thing I want to encourage us in is to continue to grow in your personal time of prayer with God. You know, both are needed to seek God. And, and, and as you grow in one, the desire for the other should grow. You know, as God meets your needs in prayer, it should move you to want to pray for the needs of your family and for the needs of God's kingdom because you've seen just how gracious God is. You know, as you seek God, you find yourself in a place where you want God more and more, and you're not sure how to connect with him more, and that brings you to a place where you seek God with others because you realize where two or three are gathered, that's where God promises his presence is most present in that house of prayer, in that gathering of believers. Uh, it's sort of like this, you know, um, if you have a hobby, say you like playing basketball, you know, it's fun, you know, to, to shoot hoops, <coughs> to do drills, but sooner or later, you're not going to be satisfied with that. Sooner or later, you want to play the full game because the way basketball was meant to be played is with a team. 
That's how you can most fully enjoy the game when you do it together. That's the same with prayer. As we pray, that, that's good, but it leads us to want to do it together because that's the vision that God has for his people to be a house of prayer. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Um, they're actually going to be coming up to pray. <laughs> uh, those of you who are in the sanctuary, you guys can gather to pray as well. Uh, those of you on Zoom, we're going to be breaking you out and you know, just be in God's presence. Whatever he brings to your heart, pray with one another. But let's spend some time praying together. And then after that, we can sing together. So let's pray together now. <clears throat>